This is Democracy in Crisis, and I'm Baynard Woods, back again this week with EZ Jackson, The Real News Network, and Brandon Soderberg of the Baltimore Beat. What's up, guys? What's going on, man? What's up? So, uh, the president came out this week. It was reported earlier by Axios uh, that he was privately saying to people often around the White House that uh, we should just kill drug dealers, and... uh, you know, that seems to have been floating the the idea to see how it went. And so then yesterday at his uh, opioid crisis policy uh, thing, he floated that idea with his own mouth and in public saying that, uh, you know, a lot of countries have no drug problems and because they have very stiff penalties, the ultimate penalty. So, mm-hmm. uh you know, there, there's, and and we had him. Brandon tweeted some about it this week. This the same time, there's this time uh, photojournalism thing going out with uh, showing a bunch of white people and needles and shit to become seem like victims of of these folks. And the Department of Justice, instead of uh, they come out and say, "Oh, we're gonna we're interested in these lawsuits that people are doing," but they don't do anything else. So we're here in in what has been called the heroin capital of the U.S. Uh, where this stuff is not anything new at all. Um, and so maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, drugs this week and see. And, and here in Baltimore this weekend is the Drug Policy Alliance Conference as well. So there's a lot of sort of, uh, as usual around here, a lot of sort of drug stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think like the president's stance, I mean, as if we didn't already know that this administration is extremely disconnected from the real experiences of everyday people. This is like a prime example. Um, When you are villainizing drug dealers and looking at even your approach to this approach to the opioid crisis is crazy. Um, I think, you know, when you think about the whole process of how people get hooked on opioids in the first place and you look at a lot of inner cities where you have Um, gunshot victims, um, and even people who play sports um, and get injured uh, become hooked on these opioids. And in a lot of cases, if you don't have the health insurance to get the prescriptions, you know what I mean, you are turning to the streets to get these these drugs. It's it's crazy, speaking of sports, I I just finished reading not too long ago, uh, uh, Dreamland, the true story of, of America's opiate uh, crisis is, I think, the subtitle of it. Sam Canonis. It's a, a really great book, but it, a big part of that is the way that high school sports teams were just like handing out Vicodin after yeah. practice, yeah. and uh, then these these you know all the jocks were becoming junkies and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know at the same time, of course, you have this aggressive ramp up of the war on drugs, including Sessions's moronic right. take on cannabis, especially. And um, that kind of relates to sports, too, because something that kind of ties to Baltimore as well is you have a few football players who are cannabis advocates. Eugene Monroe used to play for the Baltimore Ravens. And then Ricky Williams, who played for the Ravens for a little bit, played for the Dolphins, a few other teams, who sort of famously kicked out of the league because he kept testing positive for cannabis. And he's become a big advocate as 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 an alternate pain reliever. And you have sort of... Maybe this is always how it's been, but it feels to me like it's the, sort of the moment where the drug war becomes like the religious right, where it's like no abortion, 
no contraception. It's the same, like, no way to treat your pain that's in any way acceptable if you're, you know, because obviously it's not like Trump's stance on, like, addicts is going to be profoundly sympathetic, even though, like, the, the sort of ghouls that are put into that or the people that are turned into ghouls in that timepiece, that might appeal to his heart or whatever. But it just feels like a, it's just a continuation of this thing, which, like, hey, there's just no way out of this thing. We're going to kill the drug dealers. We're not going to help the addicted people or the users at all. Right. And the Democrats being Democrats are going to fucking roll over like they're already waiting to just be like, oh, yeah, we're behind all of this because they don't they want to seem like they're doing something about the opioid crisis. They want to seem like they're uh, protecting the kids who are overdosing in their community and they don't know anybody who they see as a drug dealer. I mean, you know. Purdue, Baltimore, and a number of over 60 other cities are suing Purdue Pharma and some of the other, they made OxyContin and some of the other um, places that made these opiates that, that really sort of helped spread this addiction crisis. But, like, we're not calling to kill the CEO yeah. of those right. motherfuckers. Right. Um, and, and we're not even calling to, like, okay, maybe that's the reason you have a corporation so that the CEO isn't personally liable. But we're not just calling to dissolve that corporation. Sorry, you get the death penalty corporation. You no longer exist. All your shares go into the public coffers now. Yeah. yeah. And that's totally Trump logic, too, is, like, Whatever the law is, you can dance all around that all you want. And, like, it's a strict – it's a total, even more extreme abuse of the law because it's completely just this thing of, like, well, those guys are legal. They're allowed to do it, but someone on a corner somewhere is not, even though it's – one is way more harmful to everybody than the other. Yeah, this whole discussion just for me naturally draws a connection between, you know, <laughs> the healthcare system, the dis- – uh, uh, this discussion that's going on right now around gun control and how there's never any discussion around gun victims. You know, I mean, I know my brother overdosed on Xanax and the process of him even becoming addicted to Xanax and Percocet in the first place was being a victim of first a stabbing and then he was shot um, on Thanksgiving one year and, uh, you know, he went to the hospital, got put on... Percocets and then Xanax. Um, and then once, I think it was maybe like a couple weeks period where they took him off, you know, because he didn't have health insurance. So, um, so you know, it's not like he was, he definitely wasn't just trying to use it for recreational purposes, you know what I mean? He was recovering from something pretty pretty drastic um and and i and and at that point i it for me made it real because i didn't really realize you know how so many people become addicted to you know these opioids and and it is it's very like things that could happen to anybody you know any one of us could be you know hooked on hooked on these drugs uh just from not having the proper care you know, or or just you know, just from being in an accident, anything, you know. And then the next thing, you know, if you can't afford the prescription, then you're, you know, you're going out and trying to get it any way you can. And the lack of uh, conversation around that is really, it's really frustrating and disheartening to watch because, you know, there's the one side that's totally for NRA and against any kind of gun control. Um, but yet that same side is, you know, is threatening to execute drug dealers. And, and it's like, it makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I had my cousin OD'd on, on Valium 25 years ago now. 
in in Nevada, and they found him on a bench. He was, and it was it was this real sort of demonization of what you know of him, and not at all of of the circumstances around him that put him in that position mm-hmm. at all. And like you were talking about with. You know, if you've been, if you're in this city where either you've been around someone who's been a victim of gun violence, you've seen gun violence, you've been a victim of gun violence. Like, I, I was talking to a former NAACP head and and now Maryland gubernatorial candidate Ben Jealous the other day, and he's like, you know, we have levels of CTSD in this city mm-hmm. of of continuous stress disorder higher than levels of PTSD of people coming back from the war and like yeah you need some some Xanax or something to like yeah. not be terrified every time yeah. you hear a pop or every yeah. time like I mean that I mean my brother would shit. get visibly angry when a loud boom happened you know what I mean these guys ran in the house on on Thanksgiving you know what I mean um with intention to kill him you know and after that, it was like any kind of loud noise or sudden noise or whatever, he would become visibly, like, angry, like, more angry than, like, you know, normal people get at a loud sound. And it's like the Xanax, you know, calmed him down, you know, he kept him cool. And, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just a crazy situation. The other big worry, I mean, so the, the Dreamland book, one of the things it does is show the way that this sort of revolution and pain management happened. That uh, And it, it's insane. There was a guy who wrote a letter to the editor of, uh, I forget what the name of the journal is, but some science journal. He was a, he was a doctor um, about how when used to treat pain and used correctly, that there was almost no danger of opioid addiction. And so this thing kept being cited as Porter and Jick. It was a letter to the editor, but everyone would use Porter and Jick to justify that that addiction didn't happen. It's what the pharmaceutical mm. reps would. And so then you you like quadruple the number of sales force. They put all this money into advertising and into sales. And so they made this idea that had been really an anathema to American pain management that uh, opioids weren't addictive. And so they gave them out mm. widely. But now I worry we're going to swing so far the other way the people who are dying of cancer and stuff and who are in extreme pain, like, oh, no, 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 you yeah. might get addicted. Yeah. We're not going to give you this. And it's right. just like that's the I mean, we're going to be locking more people up and making more people suffer right. because we we're going to just swing so far in the opposite direction. And and that's I think, you know, that's somewhat the nature of what the problem with when the media covers drugs, too, which kind of has this time thing that I guess everyone should look at and then never look at again. But you have it becomes a frenzy. And so, yeah, I'm thinking of older or there's a person that I know related to another person who died because um, he had a fentanyl patch on his back and he got in the shower. The shower dissolved the package and he died like oh, immediately. No. It's an old ass dude, construction worker or some shit like that. Um, and then that story sort of reverberates in his community of other people that are mainly probably watching local news, TV news of that ties the opioid crisis and finally it comes home to them. It only comes home to them in that it's this vicious thing that kills. So then they all become very afraid. And you have this problem with media covering this as only spectacle and being grossly misinformed because I think another thing that don't want to, I don't want to in any way downplay people who are using and would consider themselves addicted. But like we also need to get to this point where we just understand this is like something people do. Um, whether it's ruining their lives or not, there's plenty of functional users out there, and we need to start getting to that point. There's kind of these conversations about safe consumption spaces, but you're seeing that that like 
there was some image of that in Colorado where all these people just showed up. It's just another not in my backyard story that then is especially encouraged by every level of the news now by our president to really encourage NIMBYs to prevent any sort of like reasonable, smart usage of drugs, especially opiates. Yeah, I mean, that idea about addicts, I, I almost got my ass kicked a few weeks ago when writing about uh, drug checking and being able to use drug testing strips to, to check for. And I described a harm reduction advocate who told, described himself to me as a former junkie, <clears throat> former user and former dealer. Uh, and he, when I described it and sort of, which I try to normally avoid, but slipped into, in this case, in news language as a recovering addict, he was furious because the ideology of addiction comes from treatment centers and stuff. And uh, the ideology of recovery, it's an ideology. And we act like we're being objective when we're actually buying into a specific ideology of it. And even when we're like, Oh, act like like that time story, like we're going to be sympathetic about it. Like, oh, it's a disease, so we're going to show the ravages of this disease. I'm sorry, we don't show diarrhea coming out of buttholes <laughs> in, when we have a norovirus yeah, outbreak. Right. To be like, oh, yeah. we really need to see the graphicness yeah. of this disease. We know that, that diseases aren't pretty. No disease is pretty. And so, like, that is, is just, it is this kind of gawking uh, bullshit that allows you to say, look at this pretty-looking white girl who is must be being victimized by a brown man who's right. selling this stuff yeah. somewhere. Let's kill that motherfucker. Right, or mm-hmm. the only possible thing, the way I look at this positively, is that there's a lot of just like, you know, as white trash myself, I'd say, like straight up white trash in that. And, um, you know, there's a way in which maybe we can gently be like, okay, finally white people are being treated as poorly in the media as people of color have been forever. But that's like a really, not really something to be proud of. But there's a way in which... It still isolates because, yes, it's the pretty white girl, but it's also just like these like sub DNRBIS kind of photos of just like people like without teeth standing in the middle of the road. Um, it's, I think, and it has this as you, I want to just steal your point or stress it one more time, Mayor, that this kind of dehumanizing users is what makes it really easy for Trump to then be like, we should shoot the people giving them the drugs. And it's just not that simple. I mean, it's, I think that it's really important, especially as a for me, I think about this a lot as a white reporter covering Baltimore where there's a lot of problems that you really want to try to show something 360 degrees. You want to like like parts of doing drugs are also fun, including opiates. They can be really fun. Trust me. Um, and so I think that when you make a movie or not a, or, or, or the, what I'm thinking specifically about briefly is back to movie talk there's a movie from a few years ago called heaven knows what it's really good and it was made with people that were addicted or just had sort of recovering identified as junkies and there's it's really a harrowing movie but there's these few there's a lot of scenes in it that are really fun there's a scene where all of these like homeless users are like dancing in the park like that's a part of usage and if you have the like the access that time asshole had which was what had to be months limitless budget i feel like to shoot that and all he came back with is people without any teeth pregnant women with scars on their hands a fat white guy choking his heart out in a in a van or whatever that's just like bad journalism and it is totally a de- has a dehumanizing effect and leads to what trump can then be like we just need to shoot all the people that did this to these great white people who mostly probably voted for him as well yeah i think this is another moment where you sort of feel bad for the people who voted for Trump because, you know, it's another example of of him, you know, 
kind of shitting on these same people you know what i mean i mean if you go to i think a lot of people have this when you when they think drug dealer they think black or brown but when you go to rural america you know what i mean in suburbia you know these they're the same color on both sides of this other deal you know what i mean it you know i got a friend of the family uh it was a deal out in the you know, one of those type of areas. And uh, it was disappointing to find out that he voted for Trump and he had all of this, like, <laughs> he had all of this reasoning behind it. And I'm sitting here like, bro, you fucking deal perks. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you are fucked. <laughs> I mean, it's, you're it's, president. <laughs> I mean, David Simon's The Corner, I, I think, is a, a, what Brandon was talking about of that sort of the social world. I mean, one of the things we don't look at is all the suburban kids who, I mean, having cars everywhere in suburbia where you can yeah. go meet your dealers. One yeah. of the crazy things in Dreamland is how, like, the, from this one little town, Jalisco in Mexico, they revolutionized heroin dealing over much of the country, especially in the South and stuff, of, by having, like, delivery guys. Mm. And they would come and they would just – and they were specifically reaching out to the white kids. And they'd meet them in some strip mall, mm -hmm. you know, give them a couple of balloons. The kids would go back. They'd have bedrooms in the suburbs. They could go close the door in. Mm -hmm. And they'd just nod out in the – and. So, like, what is it? This is a generation, our whole country, that has, like, more resources than anyone has ever had. Yeah. And that makes you want to be numb to that. And, I mean, that was the thing that was so powerful in the corner, I feel like, is that it showed the sense of community, the sense of purpose, and the sense of meaning that kind of would come with being a junkie. With, with this, this gave you a place in the world. It gave you, and whether you were at whichever end of it you were on, you mm -hmm. were part of something that felt meaningful mm -hmm. while you were doing it, yeah. at least. And, and then we've, we, I'm sure we've said this plenty of times in a lot of stuff we've written, but like in a city like Baltimore that's been completely deindustrialized, Drugs give you a job. Your job's either wake up and start hustling and sell it, which gives you a structure, or you wake up and hustle to find it. Yeah. And then you just have something to fucking do every day because you don't have a job anymore because none of them exist. I think that's a, one of the most like m important things that David Simon has really explained about Baltimore, but I think it applies to most of the country, especially at this point, is that like drugs are an economy, they're a job, and they're not a glamorous job at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah it makes me think about Henry and China, who were two... Uh, two addicts that lived in my neighborhood when I was younger, and they were very talented car mechanics. They actually used to work on police cars. Like, they worked for Baltimore City Police Department um, repairing and maintaining the vehicles. And uh, once they, you know, got hooked on drugs, they, of course, lost those jobs, um, but worked on everybody's car in the neighborhood. And the only thing you had to do was get them a hit. You get them a hit, and your car would be, like, in tip-top shape once you know once they're done with it and it was you know it is it's <laughs> i just think it's an interesting parallel you know what i mean like that it's it's all around us you know and and we keep i think we keep ignoring it or pushing it down and pushing it down instead of just going ahead and confronting this thing i mean you have alcoholics who destroy their lives just as bad as any drug addict does you know and the only difference is alcohol is legal you know, so you, you can go and buy a drink anywhere. Yeah, I mean, if we had a safe injection site <clears throat> readily available, naloxone, um, 
you know, and, and then not worrying about going to jail, yeah. we you really could have. I mean, the, Mr. Miller, who who I talked to for that same fentanyl story, was saying the same thing. He's like, the hardest workers you'll you'll ever find is a user. He's like, that guy will find a beat up old toaster, yeah. and that thing will be looking like it's brand new, uh, you know, before he takes it Thanks. to someplace, and yeah. he'll fix that, every bit of that right. thing, and and in a way that no one else could, and and yeah. we that we lose a lot of talent in the world by demonizing that you have to function yeah. this way. Well, meanwhile, we're giving children prescriptions of amphetamine right. and stuff, you know, to make sure they focus in school. It's a, You got people dying of alcoholism. You got people dying from DUIs, you know, by the thousands every year, you know, and Trump's not talking about um, executing, uh, <laughs> you know, the Bush family or, or something. Or the Bacardi family. Yeah. Or, you know what I'm saying? Don't like, give him any ideas now. Like, I'm, I'm going to start shooting alcoholics now, too. <laughs> but, that, but the thing would be, if you think, what, what I think you can sort of extrapolate from what you're saying, too, is this it goes back to this thing that, like, if you really wanted to blame people for distribution of alcohol, because it's legal, you have a direct, it would be, it's so much more direct to the actual people who created the thing, right. which we also shouldn't execute. But and that's like where the, the beginnings of opiates are, you know, these companies, these big farm companies, but because it then trickles down into this other illegal inner zone, yeah. it becomes much easier to look at some guy on the corner or even some like major drug dealer as a nice house or whatever as the where it begins, even though it doesn't begin there. It's easier to trace the beginnings of alcohol problems in the country. I mean, and for that matter, so many of the names that we know, the Carnegies and stuff like that, were for, of, of 19th, 18th and 19th century sort of American business magnates made their money in the opium trade in China. The, here yeah. in Baltimore, the neighborhood that's now the like bro white neighborhood Canton was named Canton because of all of the guys' uh, business dealings, including opium in China. So uh, it's it's you know we have deep roots of being drug dealers in this country, uh, whether it's it's in the the level of alcohol or uh, you know going back to making to take opium from Turkey and try to bring it to China and sell it there. Well, thanks again, guys, for coming, and uh, it's been fun talking about this stuff. Uh, hopefully we can uh, share some cannabis sometime yeah. soon <laughs> and relieve our pain for our mental pain for thinking through all of this. Hopefully you are listening to this with a nice big spliff out there in yeah. Radio Or some Land. heroin, if you'd like. Legalize all drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really do think that the legalization, like yeah. as in Portugal and stuff, really is the only answer uh looking forward to hearing neil franklin at this uh conference here this weekend who who is the head of um used to be called law enforcement against prohibition and now it's action program law enforcement action program but who is is a big advocate from the law enforcement perspective of legalizing and makes the connection to prohibition when you have something illegal that has a lot of illegal money it breeds corruption all around yeah so with uh, Brandon Soderberg and Easy Jackson, we are engineered and edited by Stephen Frank. I finally fucking remembered that. I, <laughs> I uh, Apologies to Stephen for forgetting that the last couple of weeks, but it sounds so much better. You should send him uh, flowers or cookies or something yeah. uh, because it really helps us. So much love and grim solidarity, y'all. Mm-hmm.